Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Russia and Ukraine have a long tradition of witchcraft, but this history has some striking differences from witchcraft in Western Europe. First and foremost is the lack of Satan, Satanic pacts, or witches' covens in the Russian and Ukrainian tradition. Another is that most Russian and Ukrainian witches were men. How can we explain all of this? Well, we now have an entry into these complexities thanks to a new source book of witchcraft laws and trials in Russia and Ukraine from medieval times to the late 19th century. This never-before-published and translated material details some of the earliest references to witchcraft and sorcery, secular and religious laws on witchcraft and possession, full trial transcripts, and a wealth of magic spells. So what do all these sources of magic say about Russia and Ukraine? Here's the collection's editors, Valerie Kivelson and Christine Warabek, about their new source book, Witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine, 1000 to 1900, published by Cornell University Press. Valerie Kivelson is the Thomas N. Tentler Collegius Professor of History and the author F. Thurnau Professor of History at the University of Michigan. She's the author of many books on early modern Russia, including Autocracy in the Provinces, Russian Political Culture and the Gentry in the 17th Century, Cartographies of Tsarism, The Land and Its Meanings in 17th Century Russia, and Desperate Magic, The Moral Economy of Witchcraft in 17th Century Russia. Christine Warabek is a Distinguished Research Professor Emerita at Northern Illinois University. She's the author of numerous books on Russian peasant life and women's history, including Peasant Russia, Family and Community in the Post-Emancipation Period, and Possessed, Women, Witches, and Demons in Imperial Russia. Here's Valerie Kivelson and Christine Warbeck. Well, Christine and Valerie, I'm really happy to have you to talk about uh, witchcraft. It's a fascinating topic, and, and I'm sure li listeners will really be into hearing about it. But first, before we delve into the subject, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. So why don't you start, Christine? I'm Christine Warbeck, and I'm a Distinguished Research Professor Emerita at Northern Illinois University. I have uh, worked for a long time on peasants in Russia and Ukraine, as well as gender and women's issues, and uh, more recently, uh, what we call popular religion or lived religion. I'm Valerie Kivelson. I am Thomas N. Tentler Collegiate Professor at the University of Michigan, where I teach 
medieval and early modern Russian history and history of witchcraft. And uh, let's see, I guess I've worked on a number of other topics, but those are the most relevant for for this occasion. Great. So, um, you know, it, you've both written about witchcraft, but in, in two different you know, time periods, right? Uh, Val, you've done the early modern period, and Christine, you've mostly dealt with the 19th century. Um, I'd like to hear first um, how each of you got interested in the history of witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine. I'm going first. Uh, this is Christine. Um, I became interested in witchcraft in both Russia and Ukraine uh, a very long time ago uh, when I was, uh, after I had finished uh, my book on peasant Russia in the post-emancipation period, which is uh, after 1861. And I had worked in that project with a lot of court cases, and I kept coming across incidents of what we would call summary judgment or extra-legal cases uh, targeting witches and sorcerers in the countryside. And I decided uh, after... Uh, tracking down a number of uh, local court cases on horse thieves that I would look at the summary judgment or extra-legal procedures against witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine after 1861 and to see if there were some similarities uh, or differences. And as uh, I became really interested in uh, demonology, I thought initially I was going to do an ethnographic study of demons in both uh, Orthodox Russia and Ukraine. I wasn't sure what the time frame was going to be, but as I got uh, into the topic, I realized that the ethnographic materials really uh, were problematic and uh, they were taken out of context. They had no relationship to uh, orthodoxy. And as a result, I began to look at other kinds of sources. And fortunately, uh, I came across a book that uh, was a psychiatric account of uh, witchcraft and demon possession. And uh, that got me very motivated to look at demon possession as a phenomenon. And I ended up uh, tracing it uh, from the 18th uh, century into uh, the early 20th century. And I uh, was very consciously trying to do comparative work between Russia and Ukraine. And in the Ukrainian case, the uh, uh, sources are rather silent about it. And I wondered if this was a problem with the sources. Uh, after writing my book on demon possession, I have now discovered that indeed those sources were incorrect. Demon possession certainly took place in, in Ukraine. And uh, for one reason or other, uh, scholars in the 19th century were embarrassed to write about it. So they uh, simply didn't do so. And so that's uh, where we stand on that. And now I'm working on pilgrimages and looking at uh, Ukraine and Russia, again, in a comparative perspective. And Val, what, what drew you into the subject of witchcraft? So first of all, what's not to like, right? <laughs> uh, I grew up as a fantasy fan, I still am, and uh, you know, always, always loved reading about witchcraft and magic. And then actually, I had an experience sort of similar to what Christine's describing, which I hadn't heard before, interestingly enough. 
I I was doing research for my dissertation um, book on provincial politics, and I kept stumbling across traces of a witchcraft trial. And so I, I sort of filed that away and came back to it. It turned out it seems to have been the biggest witchcraft trial of the 17th century. And, uh, and that's what invited me into the topic. And then I just became fascinated by all aspects of that case and others. Yeah, it's always it's always wonderful these moments when you're doing research on one topic and you find something and you're like it's too good to just kind of turn the page and move on and you file it away and then that becomes an inspiration for, you know, later like work that really kind of captures you. I mean, I have a lot of this in the back of my head all the time too. Um but I have to say, you know, you you've both you know, co-authored and assembled this wonderful new source book which I have to say is great because you know, a lot of these sources are either scattered or they're not translated. So this is a wonderful thing to introduce to the classroom. And I, I can't wait to the next time I teach to, to include it myself. But the, the source book is called Witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine, 1000 to 1900. Talk about why, why did you, how did you get involved in this together? And why did you decide to, to, to put the source book together? And, and what is it all about? The origins of the project uh, uh, actually came from colleagues abroad. Alexander Lavrov, who's now at the Sorbonne, had um, come up with an idea of having a workshop where we would come to Paris for two months and uh, sit around the table and talk about witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine. He invited Val and myself uh, Elena Smilianskaya from uh, Moscow and Katarina Dissa from Kiev to participate in uh, this workshop. And we generously got funding for it. And the idea was to produce or see if it was possible to produce a source book that would be available in the Russian language as well as in translation. And for years, um, the project was somewhat overwhelming. We had a wonderful time in Paris, and we selected texts. We talked about the volume, but as uh, teaching obligations and other um, committee obligations, writing obligations got in the way, the project uh, sort of slipped by the wayside. And at one point, Val and I had a conversation, and we said, you know, these materials are too precious too important um, to stay dormant. And would I be interested, Val asked, in um, helping her translate and put these uh, materials into some context? And we talked about it for a while, and uh, uh, I signed, signed on to the project, and uh, it was just a fabulous experience, but I'll let Val take it over from here. Yeah, so we, we really want to express our gratitude to to Alexander Lavrov and the other colleagues um, who who got this started. Um, we we dove in knowing it was going to be a big project. You mentioned the dates, one thousand to nineteen hundred. It's a big, ambitious chunk, um, and we wanted to make the the sources available. As you say, many of them have never been translated or. None of the collection has certainly never been assembled, but a lot of them have never been published at all in any language. So we, we felt we were 
doing something big there and reaching out uh, both to people interested in Russian history and to a big audience of people interested in witchcraft more generally. There's a big appetite for for enriching the field with with information from other areas. Um, along the way, I think we realized that these cases, and it's mostly legal material, law codes and trial materials, although we have other material as well, we realized that we had to really grapple with changing legal systems over time and place. Ukraine turns out to be incredibly complicated um, with the issues of gender, with social order. So, so the collection has a lot of, of kind of explanatory and analytical apparatus in it, as well as the source materials. You know, I'd like to have you both talk about the type of source materials. And if you could talk about them in terms of your own period of expertise, you know, you said, Val, that there's a lot of legal documents, but I'd like to you to paint a picture of like what that means. Like what do you, what kind of material do you find in these cases or in other representations of, of witchcraft in these documents, particularly in the early modern period? The early modern period in Russia is, is, famous or infamous for its uh, inaccessibility. We have very formal documents generated in either legal administrative contexts or high religious contexts, and not a whole lot of everyday life kinds of sources. Literacy was was very limited and those who could write were very constrained in what they could could put on paper the the witchcraft material we think is is really unparalleled in bringing in shedding light on everyday life because the the um the charges arose from below so we get to see the concerns of everyday people and uh, the court scribes wrote down the testimony quite completely. So we hear the language of, of accusers and accused and witnesses. We see what bothers them, what their households are like, what their families are like. And some of the cases contain actual magical spells that were used, were, were brought forward as evidence so we can get access to those forbidden texts that are preserved in the cases. And uh, I should say that uh, with those forbidden texts, uh, the authorities uh, often burnt them because they felt they were so powerful. Uh, and so to find remnants of them is really quite exciting. And uh, Val's materials for the 17th century are incredibly rich, and that richness continues into the 18th century. Although in the Ukrainian case, I must say that the documents are more formulaic. They're a little, uh, I would say, more bureaucratized. Uh, and you only get snippets of, uh, or of windows or into uh, daily practices. And so the spells aren't there. We don't see the spells we uh, or read about them in the cases, but we know that uh, people must have, uh, from other sources, uh, did use them. The 
amount of ritual description is missing in the Ukrainian cases, except in some uh, exceptional cases. And what's really interesting in uh, the Ukrainian case is this sometimes, and Katarina Dissa pointed this out to us, is that uh, the judges will sometimes make up law. (laughs) And so it's always a reminder. And one thing that we um, had to grapple with is when we put together these legal texts, in other words, you know, what decrees were passed in the 17th, 18th centuries uh, against witchcraft, uh, they were not always followed to the T and and often had to be repeated and so on. For Russia, uh, there's a major change that comes with Catherine the Great, who is, uh, of course, uh, of German descent and is uh, a child of the uh, Western Enlightenment, is very skeptical of witchcraft and she uh, demotes witchcraft to and decentralizes uh, the pursuit of witchcraft cases to really demote the importance of witchcraft to still it's persecuted more as a superstition and causing ignorant people to believe in witchcraft. And special courts are set up uh, not only to deal with witchcraft, but it's largely to deal with uh, juvenile cases of inheritance and treatment of ju- juveniles, uh, especially orphans. Um, but there is a provision in there for witchcraft, and those are called conscious courts. And um, their investigation on the ground becomes much more formalized. And um, so it's really frustrating in comparison to the 17th century cases where you get really vivid testimony from um, the uh, torture chamber uh, and and even outside the torture chamber. Everything is sort of, uh, you know, so-and-so said this and 16 people agreed with it. Or they keep repeating the same phrase over and over again. So bureaucratization invades. But um, these sources are um, all the ones that we have from Bologda and Moscow uh, ha- are all archival. They have never seen print uh, except for one Ukrainian case. Yeah, so so here you get a bit of a, a story of the state, right? A, a kind of a, a gradual more bureaucratization, more professionalization, for lack of a better word, uh, of the state, you know, and how it deals with, with legality. Um, what, I- what is witchcraft? Well, uh, Christine and I had a little discussion about this beforehand. I think the simplest definition of witchcraft is that it involves the working of harm through supernatural means. So that's called maleficium in the West. And there are a couple of caveats to that. Uh, What constitutes supernatural means is blurry, uh, so a lot of the means that we see are 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 pretty down to earth, especially uh, in the Russian and Ukrainian cases, making teas uh, out of grasses and herbs, things like that. Uh, but if they're accompanied by a spell, then they start to become supernatural. the The line between spell and prayer is also is also uh, murky, and that brings around the second caveat, which is. The, the malevolence is in the eye of the beholder. So a love spell might seem like really nice, lovely magic, 
but not if you're the target of it and suddenly you find yourself totally obsessed with the person who you're not supposed to think about. So, so that I think is um, a, a good definition. In the West, just to add to that, in the early modern period, an overlay gets added that witchcraft involves making a voluntary pact with the devil and serving as a handmaid of the devil. That's what really triggers the witch hunts in, in the European context. But that piece really does not get integrated into uh, the Russian case and not very fully in the Ukrainian either. Christine, does, does the understanding of witchcraft, I mean, I think it's it's crucial in this change with Catherine that it's it's mostly seen as a fraud in, in many respects, it sounds like to me. But does it does the understanding and meaning of it change into the, the 18th and the 19th century? Well, the notion of fraud um, actually doesn't uh, begin with Catherine. It um, uh, really comes to the fore in uh, at the time of Peter. And uh, we talk a little bit about the comparison between James I of England and Peter I in uh, seeing the potential fraudulent nature of witchcraft. And in Peter's case, he is focused on individuals who accuse others of sorcery and that, that, that they are false accusers. And often the, the emphasis is on the, the women who uh, perceive themselves to be possessed. But as far as what is happening on the ground, um, the witchcraft pretty much stays the same in terms of, you know, we have um, in both the Russian and Ukrainian cases, the use of everyday objects or natural objects uh, for um, magical purposes. And uh, so we're talking about the use of water to make tea, obviously, other hot drinks are always in there. But it, uh, there are some potions, but not, not the lizard breath or tongue and uh, toads, this, that, or the other that you uh, read, for example, in English uh, witchcraft. The use of herbs, grasses, roots, uh, water, I've uh, mentioned again, wax, salt, uh, over which charms are said. And uh, it's to often to do, uh, they think, uh, good, uh, but sometimes, uh, as Val says, it's all in the eye of the beholder. But you also have a belief that hexes can be sent through the wind or through the air. Uh, that, and, and this is where it starts to get dangerous, uh, that you can outline a person's footsteps or use the sweat of a human being's garment, and remember the clothing wasn't washed as often as we do today, uh, that these uh, bod uh, bodily fluids can affect really a, uh, let's say, a love charm. But also the danger that uh, I think the state is really concerned about is that often individuals who are within this hierarchical system are using witchcraft to try to get mercy from people in authority, to try to make the sovereign like them, to try to affect a judge's verdict, to try to lessen 
the pain of torture and so on. So, uh, and that will uh, certainly uh, continue. But with Catherine, you do have um, uh, not only the creation of uh, these conscience courts, emphasis on fraudulence, the judges are not convinced. It takes a long time for them to become convinced of this fraudulent nature and perhaps a sense of we shouldn't take this uh, all that seriously. One of the things in reading the the introduction to the source book and, and some of the, the commentary and introductions around some of the documents, I, I was incredibly struck how different witchcraft was and treated in um, Russia and Ukraine than it was in the West. And I think our model is on the West. You don't have these mass trials, you know, in, in the Russian-Ukrainian context um, outside of perhaps, I can't remember if there are even a, perhaps a couple of outliers, but, you know, these are our main understandings. The role of Satan or the devil is really prominent in the West. And then, of course, the gender dynamics, which I want to go into more detail in a bit, but that was also striking, the fact that you have a, a, such a high percentage of men who are charged with witchcraft. Um, what are some, talk about these differences and, and and you know, especially how you, like, were, you know, were you surprised by them? What did it tell you? What kind of conclusions did you make? Val? Well, yeah. So there's a, a very, a couple very important early publications on Russian witchcraft, first by uh, a Russian man named Novomberksky, who wrote in the early 20th century, and then by an American scholar, Russell Zguta, who, who published in the 80s, mid-80s. Um, and these two scholars had really pointed out some of those big differences from Western, uh, from what we expect in Western witch belief and witch trials. And the biggies are the ones you pointed to, the absence or minimal role of the devil and the satanic pact and this strikingly different gender pattern that where 80% of which of accused witches in Europe and North America are female in the Russian case, uh, it's that same percentage male. So those are the big the big uh, differences. They weren't all that surprising because they had already been identified. Um, so what what Christine and I have tried to do is to think about, explanations for those differences, but also to pick them apart a little. So we work with a, a big stereotype about witch hunts in the West, right, in Europe. And it turns out there's a lot of variation within Europe itself. So there are pockets of areas where the majority of the accused are male, like Normandy, um, and lots of places in, in Northern Europe like Iceland and Finland. Um, and the preoccupation with the satanic pact varies. Uh, it is correlated with the places of most intense witch hunting. So the German and Swiss and French lands, it's, it's really very highly developed. Um, I think it's important for our listeners to realize that when we talk about the lack of emphasis on uh, Satan, uh, this means that uh, our Ukrainian and Russian cases have no mention of witches' covens. 
there's there there isn't uh, the so-called Sabbath orgies with the devil. Uh, we don't read about marks of the devil or a nat or unnatural uh, teats, uh, which according to European belief, uh, which is demon familiar, suckled. All that's missing, and I was surprised that it wasn't present in the Ukrainian cases. Because um, in the 19th century, we have intellectuals, uh, particularly writers, uh, Russian and Ukrainian, who are borrowing notions of uh, the witch's Sabbath from the West. And they talk about Bald Mountain, which is supposed to be somewhere. It's a mythical place in Ukraine. It turns out these are all these influences that are coming from the West. And our assumption was that they certainly come through Polish in particular, but also um, Ukrainian literature of the 17th century. But it's clearly not, um, it's not that important in terms of how it affects the society. And so we may have to revisit what, where some of those influences are really coming from. Is it because these are translations uh, into Polish of Western sources that then are translated into Russian and Ukrainian and, and have influence later on. Uh, is, we're not entirely sure, but um, it's much more pristine uh, in terms of, um, you know, the kinds of things that people are concerned about. And certainly Satan is absent from that. How do you explain that? The fact that you don't have the the role of Satan or demonic packs or even the witch's covenant. Why, why this kind of seemingly stark difference? Well, that's a particular uh, cultural construct that really is carefully manufactured in the West. There's no particular reason that magic has to be associated with the devil or that magical practitioners have to be imagined as a huge massing conspiratorial threat, which is what, what comes to pass in the Western understanding, that these are all soldiers in the army of Satan or of the Antichrist. And, and the, the, the witches' Sabbath is a way that they all collect and gather and do their nefarious deeds, right? Um, but that's a particular combination that's the formation of a particular uh, theological imagination. So, so there's no need for it <laughs> to come to pass that way. It's just seen as a much more individual endeavor. I think also there's, uh, Christine talked about the everydayness, the everyday ingredients and so forth. That, that make up the toolkit of, of the magic that we're looking at. So that you do need some kind of extraordinary explanation if you're going to explain um, flying on a broomstick invisibly to a gathering of witches from all over the country or all over Europe. That's, that's major magic. But if, if you're healing a child's hernia with a tea that's enhanced with a little incantation, maybe the, the, the need to fill in that causal explanation is, is, is less. I think also uh, 
you started us on this question of comparison. One of the comparative questions that gets raised is is not only the why is it so different, but what are the what what are the outcomes? So, is prosecution milder in Russia and Ukraine than in again the West? And with the caveat that the West is a big category. Um, it does seem there aren't very many trials relatively in, in these lands. So we have maybe 500 trials across the 17th and 18th century for Russia. And I can't remember what it is for Ukraine, but quite small um, for hundreds of years over this big territory. Uh, so numerically, it does seem to be less of a preoccupation without being whipped up by this idea of a dangerous conspiracy out to overthrow God and king and social order. But I just wanted to add, but the term mild doesn't apply at all because torture is used in the most horrific way in these cases in both um, contexts and the death penalty is not, not always or even not always in a majority of cases applied, but it's still, it still is a, a, fel, a, a capital offense. Well, I would say that executions were, uh, in terms of percentages, fairly low. In the Russian case, 15%. In the Ukrainian case, uh, uh, a, uh, a mere 5%. But uh, uh, the, when they happen, they're really striking. Uh, and they, they uh, some of the uh, cases uh, do... Um, um, make your hair stand on end. So um, we have to be careful not to glorify <laughs> these uh, uh, trials uh, at all. But I think I would also add that uh, the, the Catholic Inquisition is completely missing in the Russian case. Uh, and so we don't have this persecution of constant persecution of heretics, which um, ends up being elided or it coalesces with um, the concern about witchcraft, and, and that is missing. So there isn't um, a whole orthodox uh, sort of obsession with the with the devil. There are instances of um, satanic pacts, and um, we have um, evidence from Byzantine sources uh, that uh, this occurred. Not all that often. They but they uh, occur uh, rarely in the 17th century. They increase somewhat in the 18th century, and some of this uh, has to do with Peter the Great's emphasis on the importance of Satan. He actually brings in a Western idea, and we think that uh, that may have encouraged a little bit more of evidence of these packs, but they're they're still they're minor. They're just wonderful cases because they're so rich in their descriptions, but they are not the end-all and be-all of the witchcraft that we are describing. What, how does the, the, the multi-ethnic and multi-confessional aspect of the Russian Empire figure into all of this? I mean, because, you know, when, when Christine, when you were talking about how you don't have this obsession with heretics like you do in, say, the Inquisition in, in Europe, you know, you do have a bunch of different religious sects, old believers, and also non other, you know, orthodox sects. And then you also have other religions. Um, does, does that factor into how witchcraft is understood and practiced? That's a great question, Sean. And, uh, and the, other, the other strand of that that people often uh, 
think about is the shamanic element that there is there is literature in in witchcraft studies that suggests that one of the underlying impulses of of witchcraft is is a kind of distant echo of shamanic practice and the russian empire certainly includes shamanic populations at this time we see very little evidence of the term witch or witchcraft being applied to non-orthodox people so there's a very elaborate vocabulary of magical practice and magical practitioners, and they differentiate. So the word shaman is used for shamani, for shamans, um, and not for witches. There is a presence of non-Russians among those accused of witchcraft, of magic. So us usually using other terms, but it's only about 15% as far as we can tell. And as for old believers or sectarians, I think we were just talking about this too, weren't we, Christine? Yes, we were. And it, it's, it's a complicated question. Uh, there's a separate um, archival holdings for uh, old believer materials. Uh, we know from ethnographic sources that certainly they um, believed in witchcraft, and um, uh, but they they do not appear in the court cases. Uh, what is really kind of interesting is that we do have in the 18th century often Russians seeking out little Russian, i.e., Ukrainian witches for help. And this comes out in one of these, uh, it's a wonderful case uh, dealing with a, a nobleman who tries to murder his wife and uh, mother-in-law through sorcery, but also is trying to get Catherine the Great's favor, uh, actually starts with Elizabeth, uh, her uh, predecessor, uh, Elizabeth Petrovna, the empress, and, uh, and then moves into the reign of Catherine. And uh, it's a fascinating case, but they seek out a Ukrainian witch. <laughs> so that's where that sort of comes up. Um, I am told by people who are uh, more cognizant and knowledgeable about the Jewish golem, that uh, uh, there are some overlapping characteristics of the golem and, you know, sort of what we perceive to be fallen angels, uh, demons within uh, the Orthodox case. So um, when you talk about possession and and about um, house spirits and and other such uh, creatures that, you know, there are some borrowings from these various groups. But the real multi-ethnic um, melange is in Ukraine uh, and the, these Polish areas. I mean, this was an area uh, where uh, European exiles, exiles uh, from 16th century France, from uh, the German lands are sent. And the area of Lithuania, the Ukrainian lands, uh, these uh, Western, or I should say Eastern uh, Polish areas are really very rich in terms of multi-confessionality as well as ethnicity. And uh, you have um, more extreme sort of uh, sectarian movements, even and especially amongst uh, Jewish people. 
let's talk about the the the, the role of witchcraft and and particularly the class dynamic of it because if i recall in the introduction you both write that one of the things is why witchcraft persists in in russian ukraine is that it's practiced by you know not i don't want to say all classes but many classes of society it's not just it doesn't remain in the kind of lower class realm um so if you could talk about like what role did it play and who practiced it who believed in it well i would say all classes <laughs> i wouldn't hedge that <laughs> so uh through this 17th mid 18th century we have evidence of people at the very highest ranks, including the czar's wife, the highest nobles and churchmen of the land, resorting to magic, hiring witches, to, mainly to win the favor of the czar or of those superior to them. And, and this it, it runs through the case Christine was just talking about of this nobleman who was trying to win the favor of Empress Elizabeth. And Catherine, he's a bit of an outlier because by that late in the 18th century, elites are not supposed to believe in it. Clearly, they still do, but it's not fashionable anymore. But through the mid-17th century, there's, there's evident belief and practice through all classes. And um, I think Christine uh, may want to talk about the, the role of witchcraft as a healing practice. But in terms of social order, I think this is a society of fierce inequality, fierce and deliberate, explicit inequality. It's a serf-owning society through the mid-17th century. Well, the, through the 17th century, it's a slave-owning society. It's a society where men completely dominate the women in their households. Everybody is subordinate to somebody else, uh, except the czar maybe, but he's subordinate to God. So everyone needs something to protect themselves when they go out and about in the world because unlimited arbitrary power can be exerted against them at any time. And magic seems to fill that gap. Christine, the the thing I was struck, and here I'm thinking back to your your peasant Russia book, even uh, how close witchcraft is to medicine. And here I'm thinking of the like the znakhar, for example, um, and 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 how and even the, your description of the types of things that were used in potions. It seems basically closer to folk medicine with perhaps an incantation added to it. Um, can you talk about that, the role it played in the, like into the 18th and 19th century in that respect? Yes, that certainly is present. And uh, I, I just read a book a few months ago that um, is an English example of, um, a, and it's a novel. Uh, it's by Maggie O'Farrell uh, called Hamnet. And uh, what O'Farrell tries to do is recreate the world of Shakespeare's wife, Anne. And what she does is recreate, it's, it's a brilliant book, and she re recreates women's knowledge of natural grasses, uh, herbs, roots, uh, and how they employ it. 
And so, yes, what we are, so um, our uh, cases actually do have parallels with Western European cases that are not driven by officials <laughs> or churchmen uh, who have a particular axe to grind. But rather, we're looking at, and, and men are is certainly involved in this in the Russian case of uh, our trappers, our our journeymen, uh, they are in tune with nature as well and using it. And yes, this is a form of popular medicine. And what all early modern and uh, even uh, modern societies until the late 19th century have in common is a pervasive uh, situation where mortality rates are extremely high, especially amongst children, epidemics of all sorts. I mean, Think about smallpox uh, vaccinations are only available and are implemented actually in Russia by Catherine the Great in the third quarter of the uh, 18th century. But you have the uh, you know ever presence of the plague, and the plague comes later uh, to these eastern lands, and we have uh, you know typhus, typhoid, uh, syphilis uh, eventually that becomes uh, more so in the 19th century, uh, late 19th century, endemic to the society. And so um, people, uh, individuals, uh, uh, have to become proficient in, in uh, how to heal. And uh, you do not have a huge cohort of um medical doctors yet. Um, certainly we see them in the witchcraft trials. Uh, in the 17th century, we have Western medical uh, people in uh, an apothecary um, uh, division of the government, and sometimes they're suspected of witchcraft. But you do see um, the beginning, you do see uh, this Western medicalization certainly growing in strength in the 18th and, um, and of course, in the 19th century. But most people in the rural areas don't have access to that. Val, you reminded us of the the hierarchical and, and patriarchal nature of Russian society in these periods. And I want to address, have you both addressed the issue of the gender dynamics of witchcraft? And in particular, what is the fact that, you know, you get such a, a, lop, a somewhat lopsided gender dynamic when you compare witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine to the West, where you have a high percentage of men? What does that say to both of you of what witchcraft means and the role of men in, in society? So you, Ukraine and Russia are very different in this regard. Uh, Ukraine preserves the, the majority female distribution. Um, Ukraine, it's such a wonderful living example of being a cultural crossroads. So it, it, it keeps elements of the, of the, Sort of East Slavic magical tradition and and elements of the the Catholic and Protestant world. So it's a it's a really rich test ground for Russia. Again, I'd go back to to the position that that um, conjuncture of women and witchcraft isn't at all inevitable uh, in medieval Europe. There are a lot of magical practitioners, and the distribution, it's, it's already 
seems to be more heavily female than male in the medieval period, but nothing like it's going to become in the early modern period. So again, that's a particular intellectual, cultural um, exercise that layers together all sorts of ideas about women and their bodies, which are porous and easily penetrated by spirits and their faith, which is weak, and their reason, which is weak, and makes them susceptible to the temptation of the devil, and particularly their carnality, that they're so driven by sexual desire that they'll do anything, including turning to the devil as a lover. None of that gets gets elaborated in the Russian tradition. Magic stays at this level of accomplishing kind of concrete goals. Yeah, it's very instrumental. It's very instrumental. It's the the spells themselves display a marvelously rich folk imaginary. So it's not that it's boring, <laughs> but it's very instrumental and it's actually men who are more likely to bump into more layers of authority because they get out of the household. Uh, in the household, women are just as likely to use magic defensively against, for protection against their husbands or their masters. But men are out on the road and they'll meet judges and military officers and merchants and torturers and you name it. So they're just more likely to, to use it and to get caught. Well, one thing that struck us um, as we were translating a lot of these uh, charms, and in the 17th century, sometimes all we have are titles. We don't have the contents of the charms. Uh, the contents tend to come uh, forth more in the first half of the 18th century, that there's really an obsession ab uh, among men about impotence. Hmm. Um, <laughs> imagine that. Yes. And from what I understand, this is true of Western Europe as well. This is not unusual, but the charms, again, I mean, they're, uh, you know, a lot of them, it's just striking how many uh, uh, love charms and anti-love charms there are, but also just, you know, the, the bodily function, uh, uh, particularly the male that comes through here. Uh, in terms of uh, Ukraine, women certainly are more likely to be accused of witchcraft, and, and it, it, it's, it appears to be somewhere in the area of 80% of the cases. And uh, I was thinking about this uh, as we were preparing for this talk, and uh, a few things come through uh, in the cases, and that is infanticide linked to magic uh, shows up more frequently, there is uh, in not only the Ukrainian areas, but also in the Polish areas, um, a fixation on milk magic. In other words, women in charge of cows are um, susceptible to spoiling other people's cows out of, you know, envy, perhaps, or to um, could be charges of revenge or so on. Milk magic does not appear in the Russian case, uh, and that doesn't mean that there weren't cows, but for whatever reason, that um, uh, was not a distinctive feature. And also in the Ukrainian areas, we have lots of references to grain stalks, so sheaves of wheat 
or rye stalks uh, being knotted or purposely broken. And uh, this is blamed on women. Uh, this, again, doesn't mean that uh, you don't have bewitching over grain in Russia, but something these deliberate kinds of um, uh, attacks on grain uh, come up uh, more often in the Ukrainian cases, as does the dunking of witches. Uh, and the dunking of witches goes back to we have that in our medieval sources in, in Rus. Uh, we have lots of instances of them. And then uh, we don't have a lot of information about them, but they, they come back, uh, at least in the Ukrainian sources, uh, for the late 17th and 18th centuries. And we also have to keep in mind that in Russia, we do start to see a shift in gender identification of uh, witches and sorcerers to move towards feminization. And this begins in the period of, uh, again, Peter, when he um, talks about fraudulent possession, uh, when he dim diminishes the idea of demon possession as being fraudulent, men start to stay away from that. And uh, you do see an increase sort of in uh, women being uh, recognized uh, as uh, sorcerers. But that doesn't mean that in our cases for the uh, first half of the uh, 19th century that men are uh, not accused of witchcraft. They certainly are. Uh, and they still have more movement in terms of uh, serfdom. Well, let's talk about some um, some specific cases that each of you have have um, chosen. Um, so, Christine, do you want to start with yours? Sure. Um, I'm going to focus just a little attention on a case of harassment, and this is a really unusual case. What we have for the case is not a trial uh, record, but rather a confession of a laborer by the name of uh, Andri in Ukrainian, Yerzhi in Polish. I'll continue with Ukrainian Andri. And he ends up in a situation where he is hired by the uh, Ruszkowskis and uh, subsequently the mistress of uh, this manor falls in love with the laborer. And they have repeated uh, instances of sexual dalliance uh, for years on end. And Andri begins to, he runs away periodically. I mean, uh, and it's, it's quite astonishing. Uh, in a period where you have serfdom certainly uh, is present in uh, this Polish-Lithuanian area, but it isn't quite as entrenched yet. Uh, men have a lot more ability to move around. In the end, Andri wonders if he has been the victim of some sort of potion. And uh, he is arrested uh, when his master dies and is under probably some suspicious a suspicion, perhaps, as to the master's death. So let me just read um, uh, a few uh, snippets from this case so our uh, listeners can get a flavor of what uh, this confession reads. So Andri uh, confessed and said, After Easter, I went to Babinci and committed sin with Lady Rushkovska, sometimes once in three days, sometimes once in a week or a fortnight. When the master was at home, 
there was no sin between us. I stayed in Bumbinsi until St. Peter's fast, after which I became troubled by my sins. I ran away to my father's home. When Lady Rushkovska came to me, she told my father that I had indulged myself in all sorts of things and threatened him that if I didn't go with her, you will answer for him. So I had no choice but to go back to Bambinsi. I committed sin with her again for two years. I ran away several times, and each time I did so, the wet nurse, Yadocha, on her ladyship's orders, employed witchcraft. Sometimes she scattered hot coals under the threshold. Sometimes she ran naked around the house. When she scattered hot coals on a shirt under the threshold, she would put a lit candle into the shirt as if divining. If the shirt doesn't catch fire, it meant that I would come back as her ladyship hoped. Boys who saw this told me about it in the wet nurse's presence, and I scolded her for doing that and once even threatened her with an axe for which her ladyship hit me. Wow. So so what what is this symbolize like what what is what is your interpretation of this case? It uh, would appear that we have um, a reversal of normal sexual roles in which uh, it is the woman pursuing uh, the male and he, um, our Andre, uh, is wondering, uh, you know, because he clearly plays along. I mean, he he has sex with this woman for years on end, right? And uh, he wants to know, you know, what what makes him drawn to her because he keeps running away. So, is it love magic that can explain? Is is bewitchment by way of of loud? A love magic is that the way to explain what is happening? That he is in, you know, some kind of um, power. He's held by Lady Rushkovska's, you know, demands uh, against his will, uh, and at the same time, you know, maybe he's he's come, trying to come up with an excuse for his own behavior. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, an upper-class woman in uh, uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or an upper-class man would have been protected by his or her peers in court from a charge of witch- witchcraft. So we have, you know, the uh, a hierarchical situation and an abuse of power obviously taking place here. And you have this third party, right? This other woman who's actually doing the witchcraft. Yes. And it's interesting that she is the mistress's uh, former uh, uh, wet nurse. So, um, and uh, sometimes uh, there, you know, we have nannies in the Russian case as well uh, that uh, live for, uh, you know, well after um, they've served their purposes. They stay with the family and live with the family. They sort of become a member of the family, but she is the one who um, is uh, doing the witchcraft. Val, what about your case? So uh, I was going to read a a bit from the case of the priest Makari Ivanov and others who were charged in 1753 with possessing uh, booklets, pamphlets of, of magical spells, including one for seduction and lust. Um, or fornication. And uh, it's an interesting case. It's 18th century, so it's pretty late. It involves a bunch of priests 
which is not uncommon. That's not uncommon in, in European cases either, but um, but quite common among ours. It's a it's a it's a rich legal case because it starts with a secular investigation and then it's transferred to the consistory court, the church court, because it involves uh, priests. So it's pretty revealing in terms of legal process. Um, but we wanted to, to read this to give a sense of what these spells are actually like. I talked earlier about the, the um, marvelous imaginary that they reflect. They're also quite poetic. Uh, they actually have rhyming and, and rhythmic patterns to them, which we were only relatively <laughs> successful in, in capturing. Uh, just before I read this passage, I wanted to say, um, it's interesting, they, they intertwine often uh, mythic, folkloric, quasi-pagan imagery with Christian imagery. This one also involves satanic imagery. This is one of those rare satanic pacts. So in that, it's not typical, but it's pretty cool. Uh, and it's also done in a fill-in-the-blank form. So anyone can use this spell and just slot in their own name and the name of the, the desired object. Uh, so... Um, all right. I shall arise without blessing myself, and without crossing myself, I shall leave the hut, not by the doors. I shall leave the yard, not by the gates, and I shall go to an open field, on a green sea, to the czar Satan himself, while 33 demons and three devils are arise, arriving before his tsaritsa sadomitsa. And I, slave of God so-and-so, renounce faith in Christ and my father and mother and bind myself to you, Satan. Accept me, slave of God so-and-so, and I'm happy to serve and work for you and carry out your laws. And you will serve and work for me just as you serve your czar, Sadon, and your tsaritsa, Satonitsa. Go to the slave of God, the maiden so-and-so. Rouse her passion, Tsaritsa, in her white body, black liver, and hot blood, and 73 veins or sinews, and in the tendons behind her knees, so that she will lie and pine all day, at night, and in the morning. And just as a white cock trembles on the earth, so will she, slave of God, so-and-so, tremble and pine for me, slave of God, so-and-so, in the daylight, night, and morning hours. Let no one separate me, slave of God, so-and-so, from her, neither with a cross nor an amen. And then there follow instructions for the ritual. This incantation is to be said over one's sweat, which should then be added to beer or vodka. And then just one more piece. There's a key to the matter, which is, and the text says, A-K-M-N-A-A. -A. Uh, the key is to be applied to, to 
to this day and forevermore and for all eternity. Amen. This is how to decode the key. So it turns out these letters are the first letters of that key. The key is to be applied this day and forevermore for all eternity. Amen. And that's what activates the spell. So, so what do you make of this? I mean, there's so much in it. <laughs> <laughs> so much in it, isn't it? Uh, so it is one of these rare satanic pacts. But it's got this little twist that there's a quid pro quo, which is the, I guess, the sub-devils, the 33 demons and three devils are supposed to, in turn, serve the spellcaster. Uh, and they're the ones, then, who will bring desire to the, the love object. Um, the category cataloging of her body parts. That's very typical of these, a kind of dissection of the body into these various parts, each of which will be afflicted by pain. They inflict um, emotional pain of pining uh, and renouncing family and physical pain that can only be uh, appeased by being with the spellcaster. Um, thank you both for that. That's really wonderful. <laughs> um, and finally, you know, what does what does the history of witchcraft and its persecution tell you or us about Russian and Ukrainian society in this in this time period? What is its larger kind of implica implications? Uh, I think it tells us a great deal that's otherwise inaccessible, I think I mentioned this earlier, about interpersonal dynamics, uh, affective life, which is so close to us most of the time, and the life of fantasy, not in terms of you know, escapist fairy tales, but in terms of that somewhat kind of verge between the conscious and the unconscious where anxieties and fears get processed. We can see the forms that takes. As we were doing the volume, though, we realized this study also illuminates a lot of the problems that are more front and central in the, in the, in the mainstream study of Russia and Ukraine. Like, what is the relationship of Russia and Ukraine? Is it, is it even right to think of them in the same book? Or is that some kind of Russian imperialism going on to, to scoop Ukraine into a Russian story? Uh, the, the, the intertwining of the legal systems, the the interdependence and separation legally in terms of mythology and belief in terms of structures of accusation, all of this turns out to be enormously illuminating using witchcraft as the lens to look at this big, troublesome political question. Um, one thing that uh, uh, really struck us, and, and here we have to say that here we are specialists uh, on 
in Val's case, uh, the early modern period, in my case, the modern period, also specialists on uh, witchcraft and were well read in each other's uh, periods. When we were doing this, when we were putting all this together, it was like, wow, there's so much we don't know. And we kept sort of checking with each other. And so um, to give you an example of that, which um, I think uh, elucidates this uh, uh, perhaps uh, in a very interesting way, is uh, we were going to uh, read some snippets from uh, loyalty oaths to the czar. And uh, these uh, start at least uh, in terms of where we have records with Buddy's Goodenough uh, at the end of uh, the 16th century, excuse me, end of the 16th century. And we know that there were loyalty oaths uh, taken a little bit earlier, but we don't have um, record of them. But uh, they are full of references to uh, magic. And uh, men who were required to take these oaths, uh, uh, subjects of the Tsar, had to swear uh, repeatedly within the oath that they were not going to dabble in witchcraft to harm the Tsar, his wife, any living children, and any children to come. And uh, these are repeated uh, in later oaths. They're uh, direct references uh, to witchcraft in the main oaths uh, ends uh, with the first uh, Romanov. Uh, Tsar in the uh, uh, early 17th century, but uh, the oaths for uh, men who are close to the Tsar's body, his advisors, his bureaucrats, those who look after the royal wardrobe, the royal treasury, the stables, the the carver uh, who serves the table, all, and we know that there must, uh, we have, uh, we don't have the text, but we uh, understand that uh, similar oaths had to be taken by uh, the women close to the Tsar's wife, the uh, Tsarina, and uh, they are full of, we will not uh, uh, invest objects connected with the Tsar uh, with witchcraft. And you have, I mean, they're detailed incredibly detailed every you know every pillow I, I'm not gonna put a I'm not gonna put a feather in it I'm not gonna and and I will not uh, do any harm I will not commit evil or malevolence against the Tsar and his family uh, and it goes on and on and on and including I have to report people and uh, we do have that sense of fear in royalty uh, in the Ukrainian case uh, with a hetman for example who um, uh, ends up uh, uh, having uh, witches burn uh, because he's so frightened of their authority. And so a reminder that in the 17th century, this was really real. And we, we, we see the, the sense of fear of magic, particularly uh, with the reign of Ivan uh, IV the terrible. So uh, this this goes back uh, a ways as well. But we were totally surprised by it. That was Valerie Kivelson and Christine Warbeck. They are the editors of a new source book called Witchcraft in Russia and Ukraine, 1000 to 1900, published by Cornell University Press. 
Valerie Kivelson is the Thomas N. Tentler Collegiate Professor of History and the author F. Thurnau Professor of History at the University of Michigan. And she's the author of many books on early modern Russia, including Autocracy in the Provinces, Russian Political Culture and the Gentry in 17th Century, Cartographies of Tsarism, The Land and Its Meanings in 17th Century Russia, and Desperate Magic, The Moral Economy of Witchcraft in 17th Century Russia. Christine Warabek is the Distinguished Research Professor Emerita at Northern Illinois University. She's the author of numerous books on Russian peasant life and women's history, including Peasant Russia, Family and Community in the Post-Emancipation Period, and Possessed, Women, Witches, and Demons in Imperial Russia. I'm your host, Sean Gilry, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Do, 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 do. You better stop the things you do. I ain't lying. No. Stand it cause you put me down. Yeah, yeah. I put a spell on you.